As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and the final Listener Questions episode of 2021. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me here to help field your questions is a man who's drawn to Listener Questions like Italian DPs are drawn to Toronto, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> oh man, it's good to be here. It's good to be back talking to you guys. It's good to not have whatever I had for the last 24 hours that made me lay on the couch in the fetal position. And mostly it's excited, exciting to talk about uh, Insigne. I think that's a great move. I think it's a huge move and I'm really, really excited to see what he does in Toronto. I'm trying to make uh, Lorenzo Insigne colon from Naples to Maples happen. Can we help that at all? <laughs> I mean, I think we have to at this point. <laughs> we do. And by the way, just to come back to you uh, uh, being um, prone on the couch, Taylor, uh-huh. is that due to existential dread or some kind of sickness? I mean, a little bit of both, but mostly <laughs> the sickness. Yes. And the was- whiskey. <laughs> and that too <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was a fun one and then ryan and i also got to have the joy of uh our fantasy teams both losing we both needed the same player to get nine points he did not and that happened on the same night as i was violently ill so between those two things not a super fun monday evening over here at the rockwell house yeah taylor i lost my matchup by 0.08 yep. points that was Woo! the most painful fantasy loss in history how bad was yours <laughs> I think I was only like like 1.5, so you made me feel better by comparison. I know people love hearing fantasy football stories. Uh, let's just go for like another 20 minutes on these, Ryan. Hard 20 on the fantasy NFL, agreed. Yeah. But while we wait, also here is a man who likes Billy Gilmore a lot more than Norwich fans. It's Graham Ruthven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's a low bar, given uh, the, the reaction from some of the Norwich fans the, the other day to Billy Gilmore, which seems slightly unfair to me, but yes. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you? I'm very good, Graham. The, the uh, Billy Gilmore I'm referring to is the one who played in Crystal Palace versus Norwich Palace's 3-0 win at Selhurst Park on Tuesday. Uh, the Norwich fans heard taking out their frustrations on one of their best players. According to uh, Mosso Football, he completed more passes, more attacking third passes, and made more tackles and more ball recoveries than any other player on Norwich's team. Interesting. What, what happened here, Graham? 
Yeah, it, it seems a strange one. I mean, look, Billy Gilmore, I'm not going to say he's had the best of seasons for Norwich City, but every time I do watch Norwich, he seems to be one of their best players on the pitch. And as you say, that game against uh, Crystal Palace, all the st- statistics pointed to him being their best player. I checked with who scored and, and fought mob and so on, and they all had him as their, their best player on that day. But um, yeah, it seems a little bit strange. I, I kind of get it. Obviously, he's on loan. But it's peculiar that he's get, getting blamed when uh, Josh Sargent is like literally right there. Indeed. <laughs> oh, Graham's firing some shots. <laughs> I like your style. But uh, I'll fire another one. Norwich and Gilmore, only one of them going to be in the Premier League next year. So we'll just leave it there, yeah. shall we? Um, before we get to our listener questions, gents, uh, a new story struck me. I don't know if you saw this. On, I saw it on the BBC. Cristiano Ronaldo has a statue in India in the state of Western Goa, which uh, used to be a Portuguese Portuguese colony, and it's got plenty of Portuguese heritage. But he's got a giant golden statue there. So he's got his giant one in his um, home island of Madeira. He's got that lovely bust. Was that in an airport, I think? So he's got several Uh, statues. Uh, I think he's got lots of statues of himself in his own home as well, I presume. Um, I'm going to spring a surprise question on you both. I'll start with you, Taylor. If you could have a soccer player statue erected in your hometown, who would you have? Oh boy, that's a tough one. I mean, probably I'm trying to think of like the an- anarchy answer to this one that would just be pure chaos, but I can't really, really think of one. So it'd probably end up being like Bruce Arena is the weird one because of everything he did for UVA uh, when he was the, the coach there, when they won four national titles in a row. Then what he did with DC, we have the kind of connection there. So maybe it would be Bruce Arena. I'm not sure who else it could be that's like... F- from Richmond and has that soccer legacy. And if we're expanding it out internationally, I would say I just want a statue of Carlos Valderrama because I like the idea of slowly adding adding on to the fro every year so it just gets bigger <laughs> and bigger and bigger until eventually it's visible from space. A solid answer to my completely surprised question, Graham. <laughs> so I would go for... Um, I would actually go for more than one statue. I'd go for a, a poop house sort of showcase. So oh. Pepe <laughs> and Sergio Ramos and Marco Materazzi... Yeah, that's that's what I would go for. I, I've gone down similar lines. My choice, Graham, was uh, Paul Gascoigne, uh, one of the greatest players of all time and someone I admire very much. But not just Paul Gascoigne, him having his groin um, felt by Vinnie Jones. Listener, if you have not seen this picture of Vinnie Jones and Paul Gascoigne, Google those two names and you will see the uh, the beautiful collage that I'm trying to paint in statue form. I was- that is what I'd have. I was going to say, surely it has to be Vinnie Jones, and I was surprised when he went to the gas coin, but now I totally understand, and that is exactly what you would have uh, Vinnie Jones in statue form of, would be that moment. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Or something from Lockstock, I imagine, his other <laughs> finest hour. Um, why don't we get to the listener questions? We'll start off with Richard Rawson. Uh, thank you very much for this one, Richard. He asks, nice and short this one, why is there a January transfer window? The 2022 window is going to open on January 1st. It will stay open for all of January until the 31st in England, Germany and France. It's open uh, until a couple of days later in Spain and Italy due to the fact that it's a weekend that it will close on. Um, Graham, I'll come to you first. Mm-hmm. Window system, little pricey, please. Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting question because it's the sort it's it's the sort of thing that you take for granted, and then you, when you get asked a question like this, you think actually I have to have to think about that a little bit. So to find the answer to this question, I went back in time a little bit. I jumped in my DeLorean and nice. I went back to a time when there was no such thing as transfer windows in soccer. So believe it or not, transfer windows are a relatively, in the grand scheme of things, things a relatively new concept in soccer. It was only in the 2002-2003 season that they were made compulsory within leagues 
by FIFA. And before then, it was the case that players could be signed and registered throughout the season. So obviously this had the potential to, to bring a lot of disruption to a team. And there were many cases of players moving at inopportune times for, for clubs who were left um, shorthanded at crucial points of their season. Um, and so that is... You know, the, the the idea was maybe to, I guess, to uh, limit the disruption of that and um, to make to give it a little bit more structure, and so that teams weren't having to fend off suitors for their players throughout the season. Um, and um, to kind of look at the flip side, there has also been some calls to get rid of the transfer window format uh, uh, in terms of player trading. Managers um, make the argument that. Transfer windows produce more panic buying. I could certainly see that argument. You would probably see better run clubs, I think, if you were allowed to sign players throughout the season and didn't feel the need to cram signings into two periods of, of, of the whole year. Mm. Um, I think Arsene Wenger was, I, I seem to remember him complaining about the January transfer window one year because, um, this isn't in my research, but I think, was it one matter? Um, I think che- uh, Mine had already played Chelsea twice that season. And so he was upset that, that um, United were still to play Arsenal and that Juan Mata was signing no, for Arsenal. I, I remember this. I think it was when Newcastle bought like eight players when Alan Pardew was there, seven or eight players. And they said it was unfair because it was basically a completely different team that the ones, yeah. the ones that had played them before November. So some play, teams have played them twice already and he thought that was unfair. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. No, no, absolutely. That 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 sounds. I do remember that as well. I think Wenger maybe had a, a number of complaints. Uh, <laughs> you know, he 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 has a few complaints about things in soccer, and he has a few ideas, and maybe those ideas are not the best. Um, <sighs> but I I think his uh, his complaints about the transfer window were were quite valid. So to give both sides, I can see why the structure of it and why kind of limiting it throughout the season is a good idea. But I can also see why, in terms of having well run clubs, it isn't the maybe the best format. Yeah, and just to be clear, the window is the time at which players can be registered to new clubs. They can be purchased at any time, so they, they can only be registered to play during the windows. A recent example of that is Danny Alves going back to Barcelona. He was signed back in November, but he can only play um, from January 3rd, I believe it would be. Taylor, Graham mentioned the time not that long ago when there were no windows at all. and I think they just stopped deals in the closing weeks of the season. Would it be better to go back to that system? Why these windows? Why this panic buying? So I I understand where that comes from. I like the transfer window system. I I do think it's kind of cool that I think it it went until mid-March or something like that. March 31st is when it used to cut off. And and I do think it's interesting to be able to kind of chop and change and add new players as you need. But to some extent, I think, especially at this point, because they in- introduced that in... Graham, did you say, is it 2002? Is that when they first had the, the that, that's when That's when FIFA made it compulsory. I think a few yeah. leagues be- had went a bit earlier than that. But yeah, roughly around about the, the, the turn of the millennium. And to my mind, that is right around the time as we start to see the growth of the Premier League and it becomes so dominant with all the money on hand. And I think at this point, if you didn't have transfer windows, they would just be able to continuously poach talents off of other leagues that do or have more stringent windows in place or even just leagues that aren't as financially competitive with the Premier League. So I think that imbalance is a big reason why I like the windows. I think it makes everybody have to do their business in these sort of uh, condensed periods, which certainly does lead to panic buying. But to some extent, that's a self-inflicted problem. I love clubs being like, we can't be trusted with our own money, so we need to be able to spend more <laughs> of it throughout the entire season. That should <laughs> fix things. 
But I think having the kind of structures in place means that if you do have an injury crisis, maybe you have young players come through and, and you're giving some youngsters some opportunities or players that have been on the outside looking in get another opportunity. Uh, so I think there are there are good reasons for it. I understand why it could be cool to just have a sort of trade deadline. But I think if you're going to do that, if we were to abolish transfer windows and just go back to you have until X date, I think it has to be like sooner like late march feels very close to the end of the season for me i think yeah. maybe the end of january maybe the end of december would be an interesting time to have the uh the window lock something like that yeah i, I can understand the, the reasons to cancel or you know to scrap the window system but i think ultimately we like this game because it's entertaining and whether you like mm-hmm. it or not the transfer window particularly the latter hours of it graham is a pretty entertaining thing right yeah, I guess so. I mean, the, I, I find the, the the constant transfer speculation during the summer and, and in January quite tedious and tiring as well, particularly working in this uh, in this industry. So I, I'm always pretty relieved when the 1st of February comes around and we can kind of concentrate on just the, the football and the title races towards the end of the season. So I guess if that was extrapolated out, maybe it wouldn't be as intense. Maybe the speculation wouldn't be as intense as it is during January, but it would be more of a slow burn and it would just always be there all the time. And so that would maybe uh, limit, diminish my enjoyment of of the sport in, in general. But I was looking back through, I was really trying to find a case of a player who'd been poached you know, someone, a player who's maybe leading a team in a title challenge and then they get poached pretty close to the end of the season by a, a rival club. I couldn't, I couldn't find an example. I thought maybe Andy Cole had been that, would, might have been that player when he went to Manchester United, but he went in, I think in January, even though the, the transfer windows weren't around at that time, he still went in January. I found other examples in the summer, but that, that would be my, my biggest worry of getting rid of the windows is, you know, imagine the, the 2016 Leicester City title challenge and you have, Two months before the end of the season, before that March date that Taylor was talking about, you have Jamie Vardy going to Tottenham Hotspur or Riyad Mahrez going to Tottenham Hotspur. I say Tottenham because obviously they were the team in that title race that season. And that's just, that just doesn't seem right to me, I think. So I, I, I can see the, I can see the points on both sides, but I yeah. would stick with the format we currently have. Man, I, just this conversation has moved me back to the current format because, Graham, to your point, we already have so much speculation and ink spilt about who, where is Holland going to go? Is he going to go here or there? Oh, this club is in for him now. Now this club is in for him. And the idea that that could go all the way to March and basically never stop from the beginning of the season would be pretty tedious for, for me as a fan. But I imagine for the clubs who employ those players, it would be pretty tedious to have to constantly fight off those rumors and keep squad harmony and not have the player's head be turned. I do like the idea of there just being kind of finite set windows. You know players can be on the move. Those players know they can be on the move, and it requires you to do some business to have the conversations early to facilitate communication. Communication always a very good thing. So I think I'm okay with the set windows as they exist just because it does sort of condense all of that speculation. And also because it would just be annoying to have to track all these players. If somebody's moving, it, like, I guess you could limit the number of times they're able to move in a window or in a season. But just having to pay attention to where this player has gone. Because, oh yeah, he moved in February, but then they bought somebody else in March. But then that club moved that guy in April. Like, I think it just keeps going <laughs> and gets a little bit too confusing when it comes to tracking roster consistency for me. 
Yeah, just imagine if Bayern didn't have to wait till the summer to steal all of Dortmund's players. It'll be <laughs> chaos. It'll be chaos, I tells you. Uh, Richard Rolson, thank you very much for that question. We go now to a question from Richard Rolson. It's a Rolson twofer in segment one here, people. Rolson double. Um, a Rolson double, an R squared. Uh, to improve the product on the field, should MLS consider raising the number of international slots a team has to 10? Uh, and just to give some background here, each MLS team starts off with eight international slots and they can be traded uh, for GAM uh, general allocation money. Uh, and there's a finite amount of slots within the league. So there's never more slots created. Uh, an interesting one, Taylor. I'll come to you with this one first because... Obviously, if you raise the number of international players who can be in a league, it can, in theory, raise the, you know, it's a greater pool of players. In theory, there's a higher quality of player. We saw this in the Premier League when the 90, in the 90s and the early 2000s when it was, you know, mostly British players when the Premier League started and then there was an influx of foreign players. In theory, the quality got higher. So there is that aspect to it if there were more international slots in MLS, but also kind of goes against the spirit of the league, which is to ultimately improve the U.S. program, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm somewhere in in the middle on this one because I understand the idea of improving the quality by bringing in more international players. Theoretically, if you're looking in the right areas and you have a good scouting network in place, you can find those players who are maybe undervalued assets who could come in and make that difference. Because as we've seen when it comes to the playoffs, that that depth that you can have and the relative depth of that can, can be the difference maker. If you lose one or two players heading into the playoffs it can mean that you get knocked out in the first round and having that sort of depth, that sort of, I guess, technical background can make a huge amount of difference. That said, I think like if you're doing that, you have to then increase the salary budget and the operating expenses because otherwise you are just mm-hmm. sort of bringing in players who maybe are better than domestic players, but we don't know for sure. And I don't think it incentivizes improving the league. I think it incentivizes finding loopholes or maybe finding better players. But oftentimes I think just sort of like, like finding what you can where you can. And I think if you're going to do that, I'd rather than focusing on developing academy players and developing younger players. I think mm. that is where you can have a huge amount of success, be it FC Dallas, who sell those players on, or other clubs like the Philadelphia Union, who bring those players into the starting 11. I think if you're going to have to expand the roster size, expand the international roster slots, but not expand the salary budget. It makes more sense to me to focus more on domestic players, on homegrown players. Uh, But if you were to expand it, then yeah, let's add a little bit more budget to it and let's make that happen and let's get even more quality in. Because I do think if you're bringing in quality players, it helps the league across the board. Graham? Yeah, I I, uh, pretty much have the same notes in that I've said, yes, I think MLS should consider expanding the number of international slots slots each team is allowed, but I think it's only really worthwhile if the salary cap is is also um, increased. I I understand why the salary cap is in place, and I'm not saying get rid of it completely, um, but I do strongly believe that MLS clubs probably won't fulfill their their potential if they if they continue to be limited in, in the way they are, and that covers everything from the, the international slots to to the salary cap. And 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 Ryan, I'm interested in. I'm not necess- necessarily disagreeing with what you said in your question to Taylor there, but you said you know MLS is is there to kind of improve the the national program. Is is that sorry to kind of guide the discussion away a little bit from mm. uh, from the original question, but. Is that the case, or or is you know when I hear Don Garber say he wants MLS to be one of the best leagues in the world, what is it he said by by twenty twenty two or something, which obviously doesn't look like that's going to happen, but there is this ambition for MLS to be up there with the top five leagues in Europe. 
that maybe doesn't align with what you're saying about uh, you know benefiting the national program. So I, I just wonder what you guys think on, on well, that. Is is that the case? Because obviously the international slots and the number of them is related to whether that is the intention of the league or not. Well, I think. You, if you look at any domestic league program or any domestic league program, ultimately one of their biggest aims is to improve the national program. You look at this case in England, certainly it's the case in Germany where they, you know, they, they made their academy system. They designed sure. it so they could win a World Cup effectively. And I think mm. there is a lot of that spirit within US, uh, uh, within MLS teams. Certainly I've worked quite closely with Charlotte FC's academy and there is a great focus on, you know, bringing players to the US program and ultimately, uh, you know, the, the rising tide lifting all boats effectively. So I think there certainly is that element to it, Graham. Fair enough. I, I, I know a few years ago, um, maybe when I, I covered the league a little bit closer, um, there certainly was that that trend of a lot more USMNT players playing in the league and and academy players coming through, but then it kind of swung towards the the scouting South American young South American players and 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 maybe not going for the big name DPS, but but maybe putting money into into younger players from South America. So I, I just wondered if that was still the case. But yes, to answer the question, I would be in favour of uh, raising the international slots because I think it would probably, if the salary cap is also increased, um, improve the product on the pitch. Uh, not that we have to take sides, be divided, but I'm absolutely Team Graham, uh, anti-Team Ryan. Uh, just because <laughs> oh. I think, like when it started, <laughs> when we started out, I think that was the goal. I mean, that's how they get the World Cup in '94 is by promising we're going to start a domestic league. It will help facilitate better players at national team level, and I think that has been the goal or was the goal for a while. I think more recently, like your point about Charlotte Ryan, I wonder you're in a better position than I to speculate, but. I do wonder how much of that is we want players to play for the national team because that increases our profile and their profile sure. and makes them more valuable than it is we want to make the U.S. national team better. I think that is that is a great unintended consequence, I think, for a lot of teams. But for the most part, I think it's about how do we increase our market share, increase our visibility. And if that is with a marquee U.S. men's national team player, we want to do that. But if it's not, if it's with somebody else, that's fine, too. Uh, like looking at Portland, for example, who have never been particularly uh, prominent when it comes to developing young Americans or even playing U.S. men's national team players. I think it's about we want to put on the best product we can. We want our team to be competitive every single season. And however we can make that happen, we're going to. And that's a club that has historically looked to South America and looked to those international spots to uh, to have an impact, to get them going, to get them results. I think they have used seven of their eight uh, at, at time of recording. So I think there are teams that maybe use utilize it more so to increase their standing, and then there are some mm-hmm. that maybe do want to have that sort of consequence of developing younger players or uh, players to the national team. Overall, though, I think basically greater freedom when it comes to who you're scouting, who you're bringing in, leads to a better product. So I do think expanding it makes sense. I just think other things have to be expanded along with it. Yep, that's fair enough. And of course, if there isn't an expansion of international slots, you could just take the Charlotte FC approach and buy more slots, baby. Yeah. Um, Charlotte have bought three in December alone. They bought two from Nashville for 500 grand of GAM uh, and another from DC United for 250. So 250 seems to be the growing, uh, the going rate for an international slot at the moment. So uh, yeah, Charlotte's certainly going to be an international team and it very much so is already. Uh, I believe there's 12 non-US players out of 17 on the roster uh, currently. So plenty interesting going on there and by the way Taylor you've countered my idealistic idea of teams wanting to improve the US program with the uh, very novel idea that US businesses are all about money a little bit a little bit (laughs) (laughs) 
on that depressing note, we take a very quick break. More questions very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Tonal Soccer Show, we are back taking your listener questions. Here's one from Jacob Court. I was randomly pursuing Tony Kroos' Wikipedia page, says Jacob, and was surprised to see the following phrase on there. Kroos is widely regarded as one of the best midfielders of all time. Do you agree with this? Also, who would be some of the greatest central midfielders ever? Um, Tony Kroos, Taylor, five league titles, four Champions League, a World Cup, five club World Cups in the FIFA Pro World Eleven three times, and the Champions League squad of the season five times. I found a nice little nugget about him at school. He was so good, he was made to play without cleats to give his opponents a sporting chance, according to an interview with one of his old school <laughs> teachers in Develop. That seems cruel. <laughs> yeah, that seems more like a product of him being from East Germany uh, before the re- reunification than it does anything else. That is one of my favorite facts about Tony Cruz, that I think he was the only member of that World Cup winning team to be from East Germany and not West Germany. Oh, so maybe he never had shoes in the first place. Is that what you're saying? What? No? Who knows? Maybe. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Taylor, I'll come to you on, on Tony Kroos. Uh, yeah. We know, we, I think we know, Total Soccer Show listeners might know my opinion of him. I think he definitely is mm-hmm. one of the greatest midfielders of all time. And my long-held uh, belief that um, Real Madrid play well, Tony Kroos plays well, there's a strong correlation. I, I would venture to guess that it, your answer to this... Ryan, Ryan, separate, but I think for the most part, your answer to this is dependent on which team you support or what nationality you might be. Because I think Germans would probably say yes more readily than I would, for example. Because I think if you're looking at like the number of players who have ever played the game and then where he ranks within them, yes, he is he is up there. But when we're talking about the greatest midfielders of all time, I would struggle to put him in that category. Just because he has had a, a huge amount of success at club level, at international level, but I, I I I think of him as not a player who necessarily redefines a position or like I would even say Claude Makélélé, for example, is a player that looms larger in my memory at least because there is a position essentially named after him. There's a mm-hmm. role that he filled that is now the Makélélé role, and I think of Tony Cruz and it's being exceptionally good, very technical, having excellent passing vision, able to score a goal or two when he needs to. But I, I have a hard time thinking that I will remember him 10 years after he retires in the same way that I remember certain other players. So, all right. So is it a case of him not being flashy enough then, Graham? You know, he, he was a, a pretty yeah. good number 10. Now he's yeah. a little deeper. But you look at his, you just look at his passing. You look at his soccer intelligence, the set pieces, the through balls, those raking long balls, those Beckham-esque raking long balls, his shooting from outside the box. I've got some stats up that were actually put on Reddit today. And basically in passes completed, passes attempted, total passing distance, there's so many categories of passing he's in the 99th percentile like he's basically Mm. the best at them so is it more a case that he just goes a little under the radar because he's not a show pony 
No, absolutely. And I think we often overlook players like Tony Cross who keep it simple. Um, I'm not saying what he does is, is easy, but as you say, he's maybe not an eye-catching midfielder. Um, and I think at the player that I'm about to compare him to here, I think he is better than this this player and we'll probably remember him as being better, but he's a little bit of a Michael Carrick, isn't he? You know, Taylor, as a Manchester yes. City fan, how far comparison. down the list would I would you have to get if I were to say to you best ever Manchester City midfielders, how far down the list would Michael Carrick be? I would I would hazard a guess that he'd be probably quite far down the list, despite mm-hmm. the fact that you know, I always think, maybe you have a different idea, but I always think, you know, that 2008-2009 Man United team was the best ever Man United team. And he was very similar to Kroos in that when he played well, Man United tended to play well. But he's more about the sort of the structure than the actual individual quality of, of the player, even though I do think Kroos is a, is a, is a very good player. And, and I, I was trying to think, well, who do I think are the best midfielders of, of all time? And I've eliminated players like, obviously there's a question of whether players like Maradona and Croy for midfielders, but I would consider them to be more sort of attackers. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my goat list kind of reads like Zidane, Scholes, Iniesta, Keane, Pirlo, Platini and uh, Billy Gilmore, of course, yeah. at the end there. Um, no, but seriously, like, can you do that one all- more time, Graham? Zidane, Scholes, Iniesta, Roy Keane, Andrea Pirlo, Michel Platini. Um, and then 10 years from now, Billy Gilmore. Um, <laughs> but each of those players kind of, as, as you were saying there, Taylor, kind of, they're very easily definable players. You know, Scholes maybe became a bit of a Tony Cross later in his career, but he also, before that, for 10 years of his career, was one of the best attacking midfielders. You know, long shots from outside the box. The box was very much a Scholes type of goal, which I don't know if you would say that about Cruz. Maybe, maybe it's a kind of guided right-footed shot into the far corner, but it's it's maybe not as emphatic as Paul Scholes. So yeah, I think I can see Ryan... I'm going to sit on the fence. I'm going to do a Joseph Lyra here. I can see, <laughs> Ryan, why you think he is one of the best of all time, but I can also see, Taylor, why he maybe wouldn't appear on that list for you. Yeah, because that list you have there, Graham, and this maybe shows that we are all in a similar age range because maybe if you are younger and and Tony Cruz looms larger in your memory then he is closer to the top of that list but I had a, the same one roughly I would add Chavi to that one I would add uh, Clarence Sadorf to that one as well yeah. and those are all players from a like very uh, not specific but roughly the same era and I wonder if maybe as we do get a little bit older as we move on, maybe Tony Cruz does end up going the other way. And we look at the kind of consistency he's had, this, the success he's had, and maybe there is that once he's gone from the game, that career retrospective, you're looking back and realizing just how important he was. And so maybe he's one of those people who you don't really value at that level, or we don't really value collectively until after he's retired. And then we can see over 100 caps for Germany, not too shabby. Over 200 caps for uh, Real Madrid and then Bayern Munich before them. Like He's a player who I think has played for huge clubs, had huge success, but I also wonder if that works against him a little bit because like with those Madrid teams, is he the best player on that team or is it Luka Modric? Is it Karim Benzema? Is it Cristiano Ronaldo? There's so many good players on those teams and Bayern Munich before them that I think... To some extent, he gets a little bit lost in the shuffle because he's so consistently been surrounded by that top talent. Simultaneously, to be involved in that top talent and stay in that group also shows how good he is. So it, it's kind of, yeah. it's a murky one, it's a hazy one. I just, whenever we're talking about the greatest of all time, I think that can be a, a little bit premature when that player is still playing. Taylor, you, you mentioned the, the clubs that he's, or the teams he's he's played for there. And on a similar um 
train of thought, a similar line of thought, I looked at the managers that he's worked under as well. And oh, that wow. I think also that bolsters his case as maybe one of the, the best of all time because he's worked with Guardiola, Ancelotti, Zidane, uh, Yogi Lowe, and all of those managers and a few more as well in there have all had him as a central part of their team. So, and all of those managers have different approaches. You know, Guardiola to Zinedine Zidane, two very different coaches. Even Guardiola to Ancelotti is, is very different. And yet he is able to operate in all of those teams. So I think that's definitely a, a gold star for if Mr. You, if you told me Tony Cruz <laughs> played under Pep Guardiola, I would have said that can't be the case. I did not realize that he was at Bayern Munich at that point, I forget how long Pep has been at Man City. I would have thought for sure they did not overlap. You just blew my mind, Graham. Thanks. For yeah. That. If you look at the photos of Kroos back then, he looks like a little boy as well. He looks so much younger. <laughs> I mean, he still does. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I think ultimately, uh, the Wikipedia statement, Kroos is widely regarded as one of the best midfielders of all time. That holds up 100% for me. And I'm a Kroos stan, and I maintain the formula that if Kroos plays well, Real Madrid plays well. That has never been disproved, in my opinion. But then... The part of the question asking for some of the greatest midfielders ever, I've, I've drawn up a very similar list to you guys. The top four I had was Zidane, Scholes, Iniesta and Xavi. This is of the last few decades of my soccer watching career, essentially. And then I thought, does Crows complete a top five there? And I'm not convinced. Because then when do you get, where do you get players like, say, Gerard or Lampard, Graham, for example? Do they mm. go above Crows in that ranking? I don't know. I don't know oh, how to rank That's him. tough. I think we can all no. agree that one of the best of all time is a very difficult criteria to uh, to determine what exactly what that means. Uh, and also, how many are we talking? Are we talking top five or top 20? Maybe in the top 20, Kroos is in there. But as you say there, Ryan, top five, I probably wouldn't have him in the top five. Yeah. There's a lot of midfielders out there. So maybe we should do a longer list than five. That might be fair on Mr. Kroos, who is very, very good at the soccers. We are all agreed on that. Thank you very much, Jacob, for that question. Nathan Clark is up next, next with what he uh, describes as a simple question. Is David Moyes actually a quality manager? Should he be considered for bigger jobs? Uh, Moyes has managed Preston, Everton, Man United, Real Sociedad, lest we forget um, him sitting in the uh, stands eating What time that was? Was he eating like some potato chips from a fan that time? <laughs> that was legendary. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and he, um, he went to Sunderland and then where he is at West Ham as well. His only silverware, Graham, second division title with Preston in 2000. And of course, the hallowed community shield of 2013. Uh, he is widely revered, uh, I'd say principally, Graham, for his work with Everton. Um, mm-hmm. What do we think? Quality manager? Yeah. Am, am I allowed to think that, that Moyes has proven himself as a quality manager, but also think he shouldn't be considered for a bigger job? Is that like, is that contradictory or am I allowed to, to think that? I, I feel like, I also feel like Moyes probably wouldn't have any real appetite at this point to take on a big six job in the Premier League again. When you hear him talk about what happened at Manchester United, where obviously he lasted, what was it? Seven months, eight months or, or yeah. something like that. Um, it, it felt like that really, sort of uh damaged them you know kind of as 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 a character it, it took him quite a quite a while to to recover from that and while with someone like Brendan Rodgers I get the sense that he is probably quite desperate to get another chance at, at, at a big six club to prove himself at the very top I don't get that that feeling from Moyes and I think he's probably quite happy and it feels like a good fit where he is right now with with West Ham and I think his approach is suited to underdogs and I mean that respectfully you know he he has a 
he's a he's a bread and butter football manager. He likes his wingers to be wingers. He likes good midfield organisations. He likes um, two players in the centre of the pitch to be quite physical on both sides of the ball. And I think had Moyes got his chance at a big club 10 years earlier, had he got the Man United job earlier, he probably would have done pretty well. But it feels like bigger clubs now expect a little bit more from their managers, a little, something a little bit more modern. And he can get away with it at West Ham because maybe they don't expect that. But I think if he goes to a, a bigger club, um, a bigger job, then maybe he would fall down by the same criteria that he fell down at, at Manchester United. So I, I, I realise that that might be quite contradictory to think he's a quality manager but shouldn't be uh, considered for a bigger job. But that's where I am. It, it's going to be a TSS love in here because, Graham, I'm in the exact same uh, position. I feel like you and I have agree, agreed on a couple points today, <laughs> but this one I definitely do because... I think he is the managerial equivalent to me of Wilfred Zaha, who had a very similar thing of moves from the small club to Manchester United. It does not go well, moves back to the small club and has continued success from there. And I think David Moyes is, is similar in my mind, that the success he had at Everton and what I always remember with his teams at Everton being that they start slow, finish strong, and he finds a way to kind of get them to gel, play really, really well, and they end up top half, top eight, something like that. And that is no small feat. And I think it's so easy to as like armchair analysts to people who've like played the game but not nearly at that level to think oh you it's not that hard you put your best players out there you give them simple instructions you get the job done but balancing personalities and and young fiery rich personalities all trying to kind of blend them together to get them to work to pull in unison is such a ridiculously difficult feat that anybody who i think has had success over the period that David Moyes has had, and even with some of the fa- failures he's had, I even respect, say, trying Sociedad, jumping to a foreign league and seeing how it goes and figuring out what he can do, and the answer there being not much, and then he moves back, and now he's having the success he is at West Ham. I think he's a good manager because he continues to be a manager in the top flight, and that is not something you can say about a lot of people. He doesn't get sort of folded into the relegation specialists, the the Kerbishleys, the Allardyces. I, I feel like people will shudder that I've put those two together. But like the the Pardews, he easily could have been another Alan Pardew or another, um, I almost said Alan Partridge, or another Tony Pulis. And instead, I think he kind of reinvents himself. He keeps adjusting what, he's, what he wants his teams to do, how he wants his teams to play. But fundamentally, with core concepts in place, as Graham already said. And so I think he makes a lot of sense where he is at West Ham. Maybe he'll get another opportunity and maybe he jumps at it, but I don't think he needs to do that. And I would say he probably shouldn't because I think taking that top flight, those top, top, top tier jobs in those top flight uh, leagues requires so much investment, but so much like philosophy behind it and an understanding of I want my teams to play this specific way, this specific style, and it requires this specific investment. I'm not sure that's what is the strong strongest aspect of David Moyes' managerial tenure so far. So I think staying at the level he's at makes a lot of sense, but he is still a good manager in my mind, even with some of the failures he has had. Taylor, do we, do we conflate being a good quality manager with being fashionable? I mean, as Graham said, he's he's meat and potatoes. He's you know a fairly fairly plain in his approach compared to some other of the top managers. Could, mm. Does it mark against him that he's not he's not a Pep, he's not a Tuchel? Um, do, do you get what I'm saying? Is it is it yeah. because he's he, he's he's Tony Kroos in many ways? He's not as flashy as some of his uh, his peers. I bet I he mean, likes Robbie Williams as well. <laughs> I mean, like this is this is this is going to sound. 
I don't know what, so I will I will let Graham respond to it. But I I wonder if what you're describing, Ryan, it's like is he too Scottish? Like 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 that you <laughs> no have bit. like Jurgen Klopp is is German, but has that very avuncular, very feisty, smiling personality. Pep Guardiola has this intellectual disposition of this man of, of the world who's gotten coaching licenses in different countries and played in different leagues and. And I look at David Moyes, and I think he's a manager who isn't going to talk like that much about philosophy. I don't think he's going to be particularly flashy. It, he reminds me of Graham a little bit, in that Graham, I think, isn't <laughs> going to be too self-promotional, isn't going to be too flashy or glamorous, is about, you know, doing the job, getting the job done. And I wonder if what you're describing, Ryan, is basically, uh, is he like cut from the Sir Alex Ferguson mold in a time when that is not quite as in demand? I, I I can definitely see that because up here in Scotland there was a, a a young coach called Ian Cathro who was actually he's been at a number of clubs in the Premier League as a as an assistant manager and he spoke in uh, he spoke in a different way to most Scottish managers he talked about kind of philosophies and a lot of deep tactical ideas and basically everyone in Scottish football went. <laughs> who is this guy <laughs> and that is that's is, that's basically yeah Moyes is the antithesis of that and I think a lot of Scottish managers are uh, a bit like that v- very straight to the point and uh, not much fuss who's this guy going to Spain and eating potato chips with the fans in the stands goodness me <laughs> too is that too much is that too flashy Graham yeah yeah, yeah. I mean any, any other types of potatoes besides just potatoes is too much in my eyes yeah <laughs> Uh, but uh, not if they're fried, of course, Graham. Yeah, well, f- just fried, fried potatoes, yeah. Excellent. Potatoes or fried potatoes, yeah, that's your choice. All right, so circling back to Nathan's question, have we concluded that he is a quality manager, however, he maybe shouldn't be considered for bigger jobs, Graham? Is that where we've landed? Yes, I think so. We've just decided David Moy's uh, destiny for him. Sorry, yeah, sorry, I mean- Dave. Uh, Dave, if you wanted another big six job, uh, it's not going to happen. We've decided... <laughs> I think if if somebody is considering him, I think it's it makes more sense to consider him at like as he is basically. Like I don't think he's a manager who's going to get another gig and then say, you know what, I'm all about tiki taka now. I'm all about this style of like gig and pressing. I think he's going to manage the way he wants to manage, and that was maybe to a fault at Manchester United. I think that's a big reason why it didn't work there. And expecting him to be a different manager is going to get you in trouble. If you expect him to come in and sort of convey the basic ideas well, get the squad together so that by the end of the season, you know they're going to be playing well and challenging and fighting for everything. I think that it like, then you could go that route. But I don't think he is the kind of philosopher manager that a lot of the bigger clubs want these days. Nathan Clark, thank you very much for your question. A couple more when we come back after these messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. 
Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are taking your listener questions. Andrew Jordan asks, has there ever been any truly all-time great players who never played for a genuine heavyweight in their league? I can think of a couple. Graham, the one that strikes me most is Mr. Matt Letizier, who spent his entire oh, career at Southampton, uh, possibly costing him England fame, although he was the kind of uh, flair-based midfielder who never would have fit into the England uh, squad anyway, but a consistently incredible player who refused to move away from the South Coast despite uh, many offers to do so. I will start the bidding at Matt Letizia, Graham. Okay, that that is that's a good one. It's maybe better than than, than what I've got because I struggled a little bit with this with this question, and obviously a lot of it depends on what your definition of a of a heavyweight is. Because one player that that instantly sprung to mind for me, and let me explain a little bit, is Alan Shearer. Um, who obviously had the opportunity to go to Manchester United mm. and Real Madrid, but he signed for Newcastle United instead. And obviously, Newcastle United are a huge club, so maybe by that definition, they are a you know they are a heavyweight. But um, you know they 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 never ch- they ne- he never won the title at Newcastle. Obviously, he would, he did win the Premier League title with Blackburn Rovers, but he never won it at Newcastle. And for a lot of his career at Newcastle, even though I think they did play in the Champions League once. One, one season with Shearer for most of his career with Newcastle he was outside that well outside that top four sometimes even mid-table he obviously went on to become the all-time Premier League top goal scorer and one of England's all-time top goal scorers as well uh, the, the England captain was he for a while Ryan I think yeah yeah Alan Shearer yep yep, yep. so um he's he's a genuine you know England national team legend but his club career in terms of the clubs he played for, and again, I mean this respectfully to Newcastle United because they are a big club, but in terms of his success at club level, didn't quite match up to that. The other the other one that I had looking to Spain, the first one that came to mind, was uh, Joaquin, who is a player many in Spain consider to be one of the one of the best the, the country has ever produced, has loads of caps for the national team. A weird thing is he's he's still playing now, and I think he's maybe thirty nine or forty. He gets a standing ovation. He tends to come off the bench bench now for uh, Real Betis, but when he comes off the bench, he gets a standing ovation no matter where he plays because he is such a legend in that league. But he um, he never played for one of the big two in Spain. He did play for Val- Valencia at a time when they were pretty decent, but again, I'm not totally counting them as a as a heavyweight. He never won the title or anything, so he would be another one that uh, springs to mind. Excellent nominations there. Uh, Graham Taylor, what did you come up with? I had uh, about the same. I had Alan Shearer. I had Matt Letizier. Uh, there's so many names that if you, if you Google this question, if you do some research, which I did, uh, you will get names that I think don't necessarily belong on the list. One that kept popping up I saw was Carlos Valderrama, but he does play for uh, Millonarios, so they are one of the most successful teams in Colombia. I think it's that he never played for like a huge European team or had a ton of success at a huge European team. Same thing for Jose Luis Chilever uh, of Paraguay. I think anytime you're getting players from smaller countries who don't end up playing for like the juggernauts of the world, you might think that. But I think as long as they play for one of the biggest teams in their country, then maybe that like disqualifies them from this list. So the only other one I had that is similar to the Alan Shearer nomination from Graham would be maybe Francesco Totti, just because oh. he does win the league with Roma, I think, twice in his entire career. But I don't think of Roma as being in that top tier necessarily when we're talking about the biggest and best teams in Serie A. I think that's u- usually Juve, Milan, and Inter uh, would be the, like my, my main three I would put on that list. And so 
for him to have stuck with Roma for his entire career, did win some leagues, but wasn't ever playing for a team that's winning the Champions League or going particularly deep in the Champions League. The time he that I remember, it's getting blown out by Man United 7-1 to in the Champions League. <laughs> so I think Totti is on that list, but maybe not yeah. quite as obvious yeah. as, say, Matt Letizier, who I think is the number one uh, on my list. And 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 by that token, Taylor, um, I suppose Daniele De Rossi yeah. is is another one. Yeah. Obviously, he goes and plays for Boca Juniors in Argentina, huge club. Roma, huge club, but he doesn't even win. You know, Totti wins, wins a title at Roma. He doesn't even win a title at Roma in oh, his wow. time there. And I think he, I just googled him. He's got 117 caps for Italy, so that surely classes him as one of a you know an all time Serie A great player. So he, I hadn't thought of him, but you you mentioning Totti um, kind of yeah. throws him into focus as well. Yeah, um, Taylor, to quote Meatloaf, you took the words right out of my mouth. I have Totti <laughs> on my list as well. One league title in a quarter of a century with Roma. Was it only want- one? Oh, I thought yeah. he got one later on. Oh, poor Totti. Poor Totti. Well, I, I didn't want to say it out loud before you did because, you know, I live in Rome town and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I wouldn't be very popular maybe if I suggested that as a, as a nomination. But I think we've got a pretty good list there because it is relatively rare, rare excuse me, for an all-time great player not to um, decide to yeah. play for a heavyweight team, right, Taylor? I talked to, I talked to, this is, I'm not even going to name drop. I'm just going to say what, what you just reminded me of, Ryan, was I talked to an, like a former NFL linebacker once and I told him like, oh man, I used to sign you every single time I play Matt. And he be, and he was like, man, that's what everyone always tells me. Why did they play with my team? Why did I always have to move for you to play like with me? <laughs> and I think about that with Totti, that I would always sign Totti at whatever club I was managing in FIFA, but I never played with Roma. And I think that maybe is the qualifier for me is like, if I wanted to sign that player, because overall their club wasn't at that top tier. Uh, for me, the glory hunter when it comes to FIFA, that's maybe where they go on the list. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Andrew, thank you very much. A really good question there. One more to round out the show here, gents, from Calvin Lazum. I like this one a lot. I think Graham might be flexing his muscles on this question. Who is your <laughs> favorite maker of kits and why? Graham, a solid 20, please. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I could do that easily without even blinking. Um, this is like asking me to pick a favorite son. I mean, I don't have a son, but I'd imagine that's, you know, that's this, how the saying goes. A favorite daughter then. There we go. Um, my answer to this probably changes season by season. But right now, my favorite maker of kits has to be uh, Hummel, the, the Danish kit maker mm. um for starters the chevrons down the shoulder and the arm is a is a classic look but they always seem to be willing to try something a little bit different so i look at what hummel have done with the the forward madison shirts over the, over the years they always have pretty weird shirts and weird as goods in my book and also a lot of the the kind of usl clubs hummel ha- seem to have the 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 the, the contract for those clubs and they do some really interesting stuff. I also think the Everton kits are really nice this season. They're a good mix of something a little bit different, but something very classy and, and Hummel seemed to strike that balance really well. I think they had the, the best shirt at the Euros in the summer, which was the, 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 the Den- Denmark actually had two home kits at the Euros. They had one that they wore in most matches, with, which had kind of blue flashes, and that was pretty nice. But they, they wore a, 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 an all-red kit a couple times at the Euros, which for me was the, the best shirt at, at the whole competition. And I just think the Hummel are always pretty consistent 
and doing something a little bit different. Yeah. So uh, they would, I would pick them as my favorite kit makers uh, at the moment, I think. Funny enough, Graham, I was looking through, um, I was uh, at my mother's house uh, last week and she, all oh, my old Wimbledon shirts and Wimbledon had a Hummel uh, shirt. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I got a reference into Wimbledon, by the way. It was getting late in the show and I hadn't <laughs> had one yet. Um, they, they had a Hummel shirt in the early 90s with the yellow chevrons on it and it was superb. But it was, um, you know, those 90 shirts where it's that really scratchy nylon which is kind oh, yeah. of almost made a comeback in some designs, but it's that kind of material where you wouldn't make a shirt out of it anymore. And and were the sleeves also big enough to fit two arms in? <laughs> that was very much a 90s thing. <laughs> very much so. Taylor, your favorite kit makers. Uh, I also had Hummel, and I will bow to Graham's knowledge when it comes to uh, to kits across the board. I had I, uh, two things. Uh, for, for footwear, I know that wasn't a question, but that is the one that I... Like, I'm not the biggest kit buyer when I do. It's usually just because, like, oh, that looks nice, and I'm less interested in who the manufacturer is. But for footwear, it's usually Adidas or Puma for me. For me. I've always worn those, too. Uh, for clubs that aren't, like, sort of, like, or for, like, uh, jerseys that aren't, like, Adidas, Nike, like, actual teams, I really enjoy anything made by Icarus, Icarus Football, uh, if people haven't heard of them. They do lots of different things, but their historical concept jerseys are some of the coolest things I think you can find. They make... Basically, jerseys for national teams if they still existed. So I have the Ottoman Empire uh, kit, but you can find, <laughs> let's see, there's the, the Mongol Empire kit. There's Ancient Egypt national team. There's uh, Pripyat, which is the, the Soviet community that was near uh, Chernobyl. You can just find lots of like weird theoretical jerseys that I think are super interesting. There's a Vampires one, apparently. Uh, so I, th- I think like anything that does sort of interesting things with the kit idea, I'm always going to enjoy. Uh, but short of that, yeah, I think Hummel for the mass manufacturer tend to make pretty interesting looking ones, and they tend to look pretty good on the pitch. So there you go. I agree with Graham. Hummel, pretty solid. You, you went hipster with your initial choice there, Taylor. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's really is just that i like i i don't i don't think of one like uh manufacturer being better than the other because as mm-hmm. soon as i think of like oh yeah that jersey looked cool i immediately think of another one that they made that did not like puma was one that i wanted to say and then i thought about it some more and was like eh. but those third kits are not very good puma and so it's hard because they make so many because you can find as many bad as as many good whereas smaller companies i think you're going to find more consistently yeah. solid offerings mm. puma definitely have the the widest variance yeah. in terms of how good because i thought some of the last season the two city away kits i thought were two of the best in the premier league but then they have those third kits that they had at the euros and a number of teams have this season and yeah. those are the worst around so they <laughs> they sometimes have the best and the worst on on the one season they are they are a bit of a strange one yeah um I was thinking like long and hard about this question. I love, I'm a Nike fan boy, so I love Nike everything. And I do like a lot of mm. their kits. But Graham, in my ever uh, never ending quest to impress you, I'm going to try and throw a couple of names at you for, okay. for kit makers that I have always liked. I'll start off with Lotto. Um, oh, yeah. I'm a 90s boy as well as a Nike fan boy and those sort of great Milan kits of the 90s and yeah. if you look at Euro 96 like the, the Holland kits they were Lotto there were a lot of Lotto kits around that time mm. and at Euro 96 too so that's they've all, I've always loved them and they're sort of you know that Italian design and the, the, the relative simplicity that they had there and the other one keeping on the Italian bent Kappa um, yeah, I knew you were going to mention with, them. with the with the Kappa logo running down the sleeves, not dissimilar to the chevrons of Hummel. You know that sort of real signifier of the brand there, and those Italy shirts with the Kappa. You know that 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 design going on. I always thought they were wonderful. So those are my two. I put to you two Italian choices. 
Uh, yep, I gotta... and, and Kappa obviously make the, the Venice shirts at the moment, which are obviously mm. uh, hot property. Yeah. And Kappa were also banned from my elementary school and middle school because they had naked people on them. So you weren't allowed to wear any Kappa things. And there's <laughs> What? Uh, yep. That's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Is that Welcome to America, look... Graham. Welcome to America. They look like a trucker's mud flat, basically, don't they? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I think that was part of it. Um, here's a good example. Like, Graham, first of all, I think I – did I just send this to the group? I did. Yeah. Uh, if you click that link, that feels like a, a, a kit that Graham needs. This is from Icarus. Oh, it's wow. the Conk Republic jersey. Here is the summary. The Conk Republic is a tongue-in-cheek micronation that encompasses the city of Key West. It was established in 1982 by Mayor Wardlow of Key West as a protest against the roadblock placed on U.S. Route 1 and the U.S. federal government's failure to respond to complaints. As the new Prime Minister of the Republic, Wardlow declared war against the United States, surrendered a minute later, and then applied for $1 billion in foreign aid. It goes into detail about what else is on the jersey, but I just love that they find these little moments in history, yeah, these cool. little... Like like, strange things and then they end up making really 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 pretty looking aesthetically pleasing jerseys based on those histories uh okay one final part of this question graham i'm going to flip it for you uh who are the worst kit maker and why is it the one that does newcastle where everything costs a million dollars yeah so castor is uh and i'm reluctant to say castor because um Andy Murray owns a large portion of that yeah. company, <laughs> but um, their their football stuff so far they've only really been in football for two years. But they have Rangers, uh, Newcastle Wolves are also Castor. That the, their uh, yeah their their designs are not particularly good. And the Newcastle shirt has this strange design around the collar where it looks like it's a, a giant four. And they use they use a lot of do you know what I mean when I say Ryan piping. They use a lot of yep. piping in their shirts, which feels very uh, old-fashioned and dated. And everything is a fortune. A hoodie is about £160, and I'm not even joking. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty low down the list. Too expensive. Any nominations, Taylor, for, for, for kit makers you don't like? And hopefully they're not sponsoring this show today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, think I, have any, uh, I don't think I have any beef with any particular shirt manufacturer. How very neutral of you, Taylor. Thank you for revealing uh, <laughs> that one. All right. I think that just about wraps up. I'm trying to think. I mean, I run through run. it. I, I, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, Ryan. I will give you an answer. I will just say anybody who really leaned into the like micro-sizing, the skin-tight jersey, that, that's one that I don't think I ever need. I am not oh. an elite footballer. I don't need every part of my torso <laughs> to be shown to the public. I need ones that maybe hide some things. So anybody who's gone super, super tight-fitting, that is maybe not the manufacturer for me. Okay. So it feels like we're coming back to Puma again. <laughs> <laughs> potentially, potentially. On that bombshell, why don't we end this listener question episode? Thank you very much, everybody who has submitted their questions. If you'd like to do so, totalsoccershow.com and fill in the form and we will get to you. In the meantime, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, my friend. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure with you too. And Graham Rutherford, always a pleasure to hear your dulcet tones on this here pod. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Thank you, listener. We'll be back soon with another one. Bye! Bye!